Section 21 On Anything. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Anything by Hilaire Belloc. Section 21 On Milton. The letters of a people reflect its noblest as architecture reflects its most intimate mind, and as its religion, if it has a separate or tribal religion, reflects its military capacity or incapacity. The word noblest is vague, and nobility must here be defined to mean that steadiness in the soul, by which it is able to express a fixed character and individuality of its own. Thus a man contradicts himself from passion, or from a variety of experience, or from the very ambiguity and limitation of words, but he himself resides in all he says, and when this self is clearly and poisedly expressed, it is then that we find him noble. The poet Milton, according to this conception, has best expressed the nobility of the English mind, and in doing a work quite different from any of his peers, has marked a sort of standard from which the ideal of English letters does not depart. Two things are remarkable with regard to English literature. First, that it came late into the field of European culture, and second, that it has proved extraordinarily diversified. The first point is immaterial to my subject. The second is material to it. Or it might be superficially imagined that such bewildering complexity and as it were lawless exuberance of method and of matter, would never find a pole, nor even be symbolized by but one aspect of it. Yet Milton has found that pole, and Milton's work has afforded that symbol. In any one moment of English literary history, you may contrast two wholly different masterpieces from the end of the 14th to the end of the 18th centuries. After the first third of the 19th century, indeed, first-rate work falls into much more commonplace groove. And it is perceptible that the best verse and the best prose written in English are narrowing in their vocabulary, and in what is far more important, the way of looking at life. The newspapers have leveled the writers down as with a trowel. You have not side by side the coarse and the refined, the amazing and the steadfast, the grotesque and the terrible. But in all those earlier centuries you had side by side manner and thought so varied that a remote posterity will wonder how such a wealth could have arisen upon so small an area of national soil. Piers Plowman and the Canterbury Tales are two worlds, and a third world separate from each is the world of those lovely lyrics which are now so nearly forgotten, but which the populace spontaneously engendered and sang throughout the close of the Middle Ages. The sixteenth century was perhaps less modulated, and flowed, especially toward its end, in one simpler stream. But in the seventeenth, what a growth of variety from the Jacobean translation of the Bible to Swift! The very decade in which Paradise Lost was published corresponded with the first riot of the Restoration. If we look closely into all this diversity, we can find two common qualities which mark out all English work in a particular manner from the work of other nations. To qualities of this kind, which are like colors rather than like measurable things, it is difficult to give a title. I will hazard, however, these two words, 
adventure, and mystery. There is no English work of any period, especially there is no English work of any period later than the middle of the sixteenth century, which has not got it all in those emotions which proceed from the love of adventure. How notable it is, for instance, that landscape appears and reappears in every diverse form of English verse. Even in Shakespeare you have it now and then as vivid as a little snapshot, and it runs unceasingly through every current of the stream. It glows in Gray's elegy, and it is the binding element of In Memoriam. It saves the earlier work of Wordsworth. It permeates the large effect of Byron and those two poems which today no one reads. Thalibu and the Curse of Kehama are alive with it. It is the very inspiration of Keats and of Coleridge. Now this hunger for landscape and this vivid sense of it are but aspects of adventure. For the men who thus feel and speak are the men who, desiring to travel to unknown places, are in a mood for sudden revelations of sea and land. So a living poet has written, When all the holy primal part of me arises up within me to salute the glorious vision of the earth and sea that are the kindred of the destitute, the note of those four lines is the note of the landscape in English letters, and that note is the best proof and effect of adventure. If any man is too poor to travel, though I cannot imagine any man so poor, or if he is constrained from travel by the unhappy necessities of a slavish life, he can always escape through the door of English letters. Let such a one read the third and fourth books of Paradise Lost before he falls asleep, and he will find next morning that he has gone on a great journey. Milton, by his perpetual and ecstatic delight in these visions of the world, was the normal and the central example of an English poet. As when, far off at sea, a fleet described hangs in the clouds, or again, Hesperus that led the starry host rode brightest till the moon, rising in cloudy majesty at length, apparent queen unveiled. He everywhere and in a profusion that is, as it were, rebellious against his strict discipline of words, sees and expresses the picture of this world. If landscape be the best test of the quality of this adventure in English poets, and the Milton as their standard, so the mystic character of English verse appears in them and in him. No period could be so formal as to stifle or even to hide this demand of English writers for mystery and for emotions communicable only by an art allied to music. The passion is so strong that many ill acquainted with foreign literature will deny such literature any poetic quality because they do not find in it the unmistakable thrill which the English reader demands of a poet as he demands it of a musician. As landscape might be taken for the best test of adventure, so of this appetite for the mysterious, the best measurable test is rhythm. Highly accentuated rhythm and emphasis are the marks and the concomitants of that spirit. As powerful a line as any in the language for suddenly evoking intense feeling, by no perceptible artifice is that line in Lycidas, smooth sliding minutious, crowned with vocal reeds. I confess I can never read that line, but I remember a certain river of twenty years ago, nor does revisiting that stream and seeing it again with my eyes so powerfully recall what once it was to those who loved it as does this deathless line. 
it seems as though the magical power of the poet escaped the effect of time in a way that the senses cannot and a man curious in such matters might find the existence of such gifts to be a proof of human immortality the pace at which milton rides his verse the strong constraint within which he binds it deeply accentuate this power of rhythm and the mystical effect it bears now you would say a trumpet now a chorus of human voices now a flute now a single distant song from the fortieth to the fiftieth line of the third book paradise lost has all the power and nature of a solemn chant the large complaint in it is the complaint of an organ and one may say indeed in this connection that only one thing is lacking in all the tones milton commanded he disdained intensity of grief as most artists will disdain intensity of terror but whereas intensity of terror is no fit subject for man's pen and has appealed only to the dirtier of our little modern fellows intense grief has been from the very beginning thought a just subject for verse five lines of greek poetry milton will have none of it it is the absence of that note which has made so many hesitate before the glorious achievement of lycidas and in this page which i quote where milton comes nearest to the cry of sorrow it is still no more than what i have called it a solemn chant thus with a year seasons return but not to me returns day or the sweet approach of even nor morn or sign of vernal bloom or summer's rose or flocks of herds or human face divine but cloud instead and ever during dark surrounds me from the cheerful wails of men cut off for the book of knowledge fair presented with the universal blame of nature's works to me expunged and raised and wisdom at one entrance quite shut out so much the rather thou celestial light shine inward and the mind through all her powers irradiate there plant eyes all mist from thence purge and disperse that i may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight there is one other character in milton where he stands not so much for english letters as for a feature in english nature as a whole which is a sort of standing apart of the individual where this may be good and where evil it is not for a short appreciation to discuss it is profoundly national and nowhere will you see it more powerfully than in the verse of this man of his life we all know to be true but i say it appears even in his verse there is a sort of nole me tangier in it all as though he desires but little friendship and was not broken by one broken love and contemplated god and the fate of his own soul in a lonely manner of all the things he drew the thing he could never draw was a collectivity the end of section 21